Welcome, everybody, to the Alpha Concepts Podcast, where we talk about everything going on in the gun culture from gear, gun rights advocacy. And in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about justified use of force laws specific to Illinois. Uh, Obviously, every state has different uh, laws, but we're going to be talking about specifically to Illinois. My name is Thomas Crawl, and I'll be your host on this adventure. I have with me today Steve Davis, who is a lawyer who specializes in criminal defense and self-defense in Illinois. Steve, how are you, sir? Doing very nicely. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Before we get the ball rolling on uh, today's show, I want to remind everybody that the Alpha Concepts podcast is sponsored by Alpha Concepts Firearm Training. We've got our training scheduled for concealed carry defensive pistol, and we've teamed up with the United States Concealed Carry Association to offer free online webinars, uh, short one, two hour webinars uh, to teach you about uh, firearm safety. We have uh, uh, mass shooting, uh, a two part series about mass shooting that's going to be coming up. So take a look at the training calendar at alphaconcepts.com. And don't forget that concepts is spelled with a K. Uh, with that out of the way, Steve, thanks again for being here. How are you doing today? Day is going very nicely so far. Good. No I'm one's glad. after me with a rope. <laughs> That's always a good day. Um, tell tell myself and tell the uh, the listeners and the viewers about you and uh, some of your experience uh, in uh, the legal field. Well, uh, I've been licensed as an attorney in Illinois since 1979. Uh, I had a general civil practice for most of that time, uh, did a lot of litigation, uh, did a lot of court work, did not do a lot of criminal work. Uh, I semi-retired uh, or went inactive as far as active practice uh, two years ago. And for the last 10 years, uh, I've spent an enormous amount of time concentrating my attention on self-defense law, uh, the law of self-defense and teaching the law of self-defense to students. Uh, In that regard, uh, I'm also an instructor. Uh, My wife and I are both rifle and handgun instructors. We're uh, teaching uh, concealed carry courses. We've taught uh, force on force courses also uh, through GSL defense training. Uh, We've had extensive training ourselves. Uh, We've taken uh, advanced handgun from uh, Illinois, uh, uh, advanced Illinois carry down in uh, Carbondale. We've had the MAG-40 class with uh, Masad Ayub. Yep. Free range master conferences down in uh, uh, Memphis and, and Little Rock. So we've worked with uh, Farnham and Givens and Murphy and, and uh, uh, Hearn and most of the, those advanced instructors and had courses. So we've tried to uh, expand our uh, training horizon and our legal horizon just as much as we can. And the idea is to try to keep people from getting in trouble and trying to train them in a manner uh, in which they're going to react uh, consistent with the law. Yeah, and I mean, that's obviously very important. There's um, a lot of misconceptions within the gun community about uh, uh, justified use of force. Uh, Sometimes there's a lot of internet bravado uh, that uh, I just pray sometimes I'm reading these things that the person can't be serious. Uh, And keep in mind, anything you put on the internet is subject to subpoena can be used against you. So it's if you don't want what you're saying or what you're writing to be introduced in court, it's probably not a good idea to be putting it on uh, social media. So what I got from your uh, introduction of yourself is basically you're a gun guy that actually does understand the law. Is that a, a fair assessment? 
Well, I hope so. Uh, I'm spending a lot of time uh, talking about it and doing presentations. Um, in addition to what I said earlier, uh, I've done, I've been doing legal presentations for U.S. Law Shield uh, throughout the state, trying to familiarize people with what the law is. And uh, one another thing that I've been doing is the last couple, three years, I've gotten into uh, consulting or uh, act as an expert witness in criminal cases for criminal defendants who are involved in a self-defense uh, situation and who are uh, uh, in active prosecution or potential active prosecution. So let me ask you this, um, and I do definitely want to touch base on your um, expert witness experience. Uh, I know you can't talk about or maybe you can, but uh, if you don't want to talk about specifics, that's fine. We can talk about generalities. But before we do, uh, you mentioned U.S. Law Shield. Uh, I mentioned United States Concealed Carry Association. Those are two uh, self-defense insurance providers. Um, what is your opinion on the average Joe, someone such as you know myself or the listeners, getting some kind, and not specific, we're not plugging any company, but getting some kind of self-defense coverage, some kind of membership uh, into one of these legal plans that uh, help uh, you if you're ever involved in a use of force situation. What's your opinion on those types of companies? Absolutely essential uh, that they get some insurance. And, uh, you know, they can sit down and they can look at the uh, specifics of each of the uh, companies and their policies. But the general rule is, is that uh, you're not going to have any coverage at all in a self-defense situation unless you go on ahead and contract uh, some beforehand. Of yeah. Before you contract beforehand, every homeowner's policy that's ever been written has an exclusion in it for intentional acts. If you do a, uh, an act intentionally, if I come up and I pop you one in the mouth uh, with my fist, my homeowner's policy is not going to cover me on that in the event that you sue me because I did that intentionally. And, and the act of self-defense by definition is an intentional act. So you're never going to have any coverage through your homeowners and you absolutely have to have contracted this uh, by one of these other companies uh, beforehand. And it doesn't, and I, uh, another thing is it doesn't just apply to someone that has their concealed carry permit. Well, some companies it does. So that's an important distinction. Read the policy because some companies, if you don't have a license to carry in that particular area, that state, then they actually wouldn't cover you. So um, that is an important distinction. You probably would want to go with a company uh, that is going to cover you across the entire United States and territories. Well, I know one company that will, but the point being is that uh, it's dreadfully important that people uh, get uh, this insurance beforehand. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to get your opinion on that being as you know, you're involved with those cases and someone has to pay an expert witness and uh, you know, it's not cheap. Your time is, is valuable to you, uh, to your other clients The lawyers cost money. You know, any expert that's going to be working on your behalf is going to cost money. Do you have uh, any uh, figures that you can throw out? Uh, if you're involved in a self-defense situation, you have to use force. And for whatever reason, uh, a prosecutor decides, to uh, file charges against you. Um, do you have any numbers that you can throw out there as far as averages, what somebody would be looking to expect to uh, uh, maybe come out of pocket if uh, they have to defend themselves in court? 
Well, I'm informed that uh, J the James Love family here in uh, Knox County, uh, that uh, criminal proceeding uh, ended up in a not guilty verdict. He spent the better part of a half a million dollars uh, defending himself uh, in this. Right. I know uh, I, I've, I've had contact with a officer from the Illinois Department of Natural Resources that ha was involved in a self-defense shooting in Macon County. And uh, it was as clear cut as it could possibly be. Uh, but going through the preliminary investigations and, and uh, whatnot, uh, I was informed that it cost him fifty to $60,000 on fees and costs. And that didn't involve a trial. Right. It didn't involve a trial. So uh, if you have an incident, even the preliminary investigation that's involved, and, and you're going to have to uh, retain an attorney to help you through those uh, preliminary uh, steps, even if you're not eventually charged, it's going to be very costly. So you just might as well plan on uh, uh, $50,000, $60,000, uh, even if you're not ending up being charged. And uh, I like to tell people I have kids, not money. I mean, the bottom line is if I didn't have some kind of coverage myself, um, then I would be spending time in jail. I would be sitting in jail and using a public defender. Uh, and that's probably not going to bode well. Um, I'll probably be sitting in jail a lot longer than I would want. So, um, you know, I, you weren't, this is not a pitch for self-defense insurance, but it is definitely something I tell all of my students. If it comes down to groceries or some kind of policy to, to, to protect you uh, from the legal system, of course you get the groceries. But if you've got the spare money, it's not an expense. It's definitely an investment um, because, you know, bottom line is you need someone to defend you after you've had to been forced to defend yourself. There's one other thing that the... Uh these companies provide that is very important. They'll usually have a uh, list of attorneys that they've kind of looked at and have some sort of a track record with regard to self-defense cases. And one of the things that I really want to emphasize to our listeners today is that not every criminal attorney is going to be uh, cut uh, in the proper jib to defend a self-defense case. They're a, they're a different animal. And there are innumerable cases sitting out there right now that, or that I've seen where the attorney is wired to defend a uh, usual criminal defendant, but he's not wired to uh, handle a self-defense case. And, uh, and it's very important for the people out there listening to know that if they're in a self-defense situation, they're going to have to very carefully uh, analyze what the attorney is telling them and, and how they're reacting to evaluate whether they are uh, amenable to handling a self-defense case as opposed to the usual criminal case. I mean, that's that's a great point. Absolutely. Because if uh, your average client is a gangbanger and now here you are, John Doe, Jane Doe, you know, law-abiding gun owner, forced to defend yourself, their playbook is going to be completely different. And uh, Absolutely so that's a different. And it really does, it really does result substantive differences in the results. So um, I'm glad we got that out of the way. That is all great information. I've got a concealed carry license, so I can go and I can kill anybody and get away with it, can't I? Yeah, right. <laughs> but some people obviously believe it's a license to kill, and we both know that's not the truth. Well, as a trainer, you and I know that one of the things that we – hope that we instill in our students is that 
having that concealed carry permit uh, should make you even more circumspect and more careful uh, than if you didn't have the permit. That if you uh, wouldn't have gone to a specific place with a specific person at a specific time uh, without, your, uh, without a concealed carry pistol, for goodness sakes, don't do it just because you now have the pistol. Yeah. That pistol puts you in more of a position of legal jeopardy than it was before. And so it's, all, it's actually the opposite. Uh, you've got to be more careful now uh, if you're carrying uh, than you were before. And I actually go out of my way in the legal presentations to, to instill in people the understanding that the legal jeopardy that they're getting into uh, in a self-defense case uh, is so manifest that uh, it behooves them to use every effort to avoid the situation, to retreat from the situation, use their situational awareness to avoid it, uh, use good judgment, uh, just be aware that uh, the aftermath of a self-defense case, uh, maybe you've survived, but everything after that's bad. Right. And, and we're not just talking financial and legal. I mean, we're talking about uh, an, an emotional and a mental and a societal aftermath that some people I don't even think uh, are considering, you know, I've spoken with people who have had to take life. I've spoken with uh, uh, soldiers, uh, with uh, with uh, uh, one police officer, and I've spoken to a couple people who are just average Joe concealed carry licensees, and they have had to take uh, a life. And all of them have told me it's changed them. They're not the same. Uh, I I spoke with one gentleman who used to uh, work at a gun store in uh, Las Vegas. Um, and uh, a gangbanger tried to rob the store. Um, you know, he shot the, the gangbanger. No charges were filed. Clear cut case of self-defense. Well, guess who started coming after him? The gangbanger's friends and family. He had to leave Las Vegas. He had to abandon his apartment. Uh, he ended up getting sued by his landlord for a violation of his lease agreement for leaving early. Uh, there, nothing good comes from having it is a last resort if you have to use force and you have absolutely no other option well, we could talk about and i and i hope we touch on in this conversation what illinois law actually says when justified use when force is justified and, and it is spelled out clearly in, in the law but even if you're justified it comes down to a conversation of uh just because i could doesn't mean i should and if i have any other avenue uh, of escape if if i can de-escalate the situation and just because i can you know the whole idea of stand your ground i get it it's a legal defense but it shouldn't be a tactic you know it, it should be your last resort it's not like well i'm legally justified to be here so i'm not going anywhere um you know i don't want to be in, you win the fight that you're not in 100 of the time and i know egos and and things it's it's hard to back down um, you know, that's just who we are as people, uh, sometimes, but you have to, because no good is going to come from, you've got a lethal weapon, um, that fight potentially could end up costing someone their life. You've got to back down from that situation. Uh, if, if at all possible, whether you're right or wrong, you've got to try to get out of that situation because it's not going to end well for anybody. Absolutely. Correct. So what does Illinois law say, right? I can go ahead. Basically, I'm going to summarize in my layman opinion, because you're the only lawyer here. Uh, Illinois law essentially says that I can match force with equal force. If someone slaps me, 
Uh, I can slap them back, but if someone slaps me, I can't shoot them. I can only use force, which is likely to cause death or great bodily harm, to match someone's force, which is likely to cause death or great bodily harm. And then, of course, we add in forcible felonies uh, into the mix, and almost all the forcible felonies are um, death or great bodily harm, except for uh, a few like arson and treason. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a good start. Uh, I encourage everyone to go right to the black letter law. Uh, you can pull it off of the Google, just Google up uh, Illinois Criminal Code Section 7-1. Uh, and, and you can pull it up. I did it this morning and it's going to come up. Uh, what it's going to say is justifiable use of force. And there's the statute right there. And you've got statutes, uh, this talks about the general use of force. You'll have section 7-2 talking about defense of dwelling, uh, section 7-3 talking about defense of property, and section 7-4 talking about uh, use of force by aggressor or provocation. And, and they're all right there. In fact, in my class, I've got a one page that I just took right out of the, uh, right out of the compiled statutes. And Illinois is pretty, straightforward. And, and actually, Illinois is pretty mainstream in terms of what most of the rest of the country is. Uh, but if you boiled it down, uh, the second sentence of Section 7-1 said, uh, you're justified in the use of force, which is intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm, only if you reasonably believe that such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself, another, or the prevent uh, the commission of a forcible felony. Now, there's an enormous amount of stuff uh, that is in that sentence. It seems like that's pretty straightforward, uh, but uh, there is a lot of ambiguity that flows out of that, principally uh, from the word reasonable. Absolutely. Reasonable is such a vague and undescript word. I like to tell people whenever you see the word reasonable in the law, it's talking about a judge or a jury. They're going to determine what's reasonable, not really you, so to speak. Well, it's, it, and it's intended to second guess you. you uh, I tell all my students, uh, you are in a situation where a guy comes at you in an alley, uh, in a dark alley, it's cold out, it's dark, and he comes at you with a knife and you use deadly force. Who is going to be reviewing this at a later point in time? Well, uh, maybe a police investigator or a lead sheriff's deputy. Uh, well, then you're going to have in the procedural process, you're going to have the assistant state's attorney or the state's attorney looking at it. And then if it goes a little further, you're gonna be in a grand jury setting and then if it, God forbid, it goes uh, even further, now you're in a, uh, actually in front of a pettit jury uh, having a criminal case uh, brought against you. And in each of those situations, those people that are looking at this at any of those stages, where are they looking at it? They're looking at it in a nice, warm, secure setting. And they've got all the time in the world, but you had a split second to make your decision. Surrounded by people that are guarding them, nice and warm and secure, and, and in the first instance, I tell my students, how can they possibly have put themselves into your situation? You're being second-guessed by people that can't possibly have been uh, put themselves there. And then, and then here's the even more scary part. The people that are reviewing that at any point in time may not have the same beliefs that you do as far as your right to self-defense. 
it may shock a lot of people out there, but it shouldn't. There's a lot of people out there that believe you shouldn't be able to defend yourself. Or maybe they believe at one point in time, maybe the police officer should, but no one else should. And I had an, I had an employee one time that, uh, you know, broached that uh, with me and I, and I went through it with her and, and she said, uh, well, I wouldn't defend myself if anybody were trying to uh, hurt me. And then I took it a step further. I said, well, let's suppose somebody's trying to hurt one of your children. Kids, right. And uh, usually that brings out the mama bear. She said, no, I don't think I would. I don't think I have that right. Well, I don't respect that opinion, but what I do respect is, is that someone with that mindset, with that opinion set, could be the uh, police officer reviewing your case or the state's attorney looking at your case, or God forbid, one of the jurors, uh, either in the grand jury or a pettit jury uh, situation, they could have that belief set. And how do you think they're going to look at a decision as to whether your use of force was quote reasonable or not. And it's scary. It should scare the heck out of you. And it happens all the time. Right. There's no, I, no such thing as a jury of your peers, because let's face it, they're not going down to the gun club uh, and, and grabbing like-minded people uh, to sit on the jury. The prosecutor is doing everything that he or she can to make sure that those people aren't on the jury. So, you know, we talk about jury of your peers, but that, quite frankly, uh, seems to me to be the furthest thing from the truth. Now, what I teach my students is uh, try to evaluate the situation. I, I like to utilize uh, uh, the Masada Ayub, uh, Marty Hayes approach uh, in terms of uh, uh, ability, opportunity, and jeopardy. And I basically uh, teach those uh, three elements and, and try to instill in them the idea that if they can establish all three of those elements, then they're in with a fighting chance of arguing uh, reasonableness. Uh, those three elements at least give them a foundation uh, to argue the reasonable element. Uh, and, and, and that's how, now I also, uh, I, I highly suggest that uh, all of our listeners uh, buy uh, books uh, that have been written by uh, Masad Ayub, uh, The Deadly Force, Understanding Your Law of Self-Defense is uh, a great one. And I also like uh, uh, Andrew Bronca's uh, book on the justice, you know, the law of self-defense. Um, uh, Bronca uses a five-element uh, analysis, uh, which, to the person uh, on the street in the midst of an incident, becomes a little more, in my mind, problematic. Uh, it's a good book to read. It's a good book to understand his uh, analysis. A lot of good stuff in it. But in terms of the analyzing a situation on the fly, I've always thought that the ability, opportunity, and jeopardy analysis was a little bit more expeditious for the average person. And so that's why I teach that. So to those two books, um, actually that uh, Masad Ayub Deadly Force book, uh, I believe that the uh, Armed Citizen Legal Defense Network gives out for free if you join their their group and their uh uh, a group similar to USCCA and, and Law Shield. Obviously, they have their own differences. So, like you said, read the policies. But I'm pretty sure they give out that book for free when you join. And then also Andrew Bronca's book. Oh, so there, yeah, ACLDN. Uh, Andrew Bronca's book 
Um, I just popped up in my Facebook feed uh, probably a day or two ago. He's actually giving out his book for free if you just pay shipping, which I don't remember if shipping was like seven or ten dollars or something, but great opportunity to get his book as well uh, because all that information is it, it takes you know that that minutia for most people you you obviously are learned in reading law i read law for fun because i'm a special kind of person but not many people uh are like that and they can start to get lost in the legal ease and i think both of those two authors do an excellent job um putting it into layman's terms that anybody can understand particularly uh, uh again i think the layman uh, will find uh, Masad Ayub probably a real uh, a little easier. The more in depth uh, student on the law of self defense uh, will appreciate uh, Branca even more. Um, it's they're 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 just two resources that I highly recommend. But in terms of trying to analyze this reasonableness element and make some prediction of reasonableness, I. I really like the ability, opportunity, and jeopardy analysis and, and strongly suggest that students, your listeners, uh, take a good close look at that. Absolutely. And in all my concealed carry classes, we've got a 20-minute video uh, from um, Masad Ayub that we show where he outlines and lays out the, uh, the, the whole three-legged stool um, of ability, opportunity, and jeopardy. Uh, and it's important to understand. And I actually had a lawyer in one class say that that doesn't exist anywhere in the law. And I said, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's a generic legal theory that uh, will keep you, you know, as best as possible from having to get into, you know, justifiable use of force exonerations in the in the criminal code. Uh, it's something that allows your expert witness to argue and your lawyer to argue on your behalf that, uh, you know, your affirmative defense is a perfect affirmative defense and you had no other choice. Uh, but to do, you know, what you did and, and use force against somebody. So uh, it's like I said, it's that layman's terms, but it's that legal theory that just is such a blanket, all encompassing will apply to uh, every single state, um, not just, you know, the state that you're in. If anyone travels out of the state, you know, uh, whatever state you're in and you travel to the next state, their use of force laws are, are different. You may have a duty to retreat. Um, you know, whereas if, if you think about only will use force uh, if it's an immediate danger, well, then you, you've got the mindset that um, that you will retreat if given that opportunity, whether it's your duty uh, or not. So it's a great theory to keep you out of uh, trouble in, in any uh, jurisdiction that you may find yourself in. Every time that I do a legal presentation, and probably you do too, we try to uh, teach as conservative an approach as possible, that uh, we put them in as uh, good a position, as solid a position legally as they possibly could be, um, and, and so that they avoid the, avoid the legal problems. And, and, I, and I go out of my way to emphasize that, okay, well, this may not be exactly uh, uh, the only way to do it, but it's the most conservative or the most careful way of doing it. The most careful way is you're less risky. It's the least likely to get you in any sort of trouble if you go down this avenue. 
Um, because I think it's negligent as an instructor to, to, if, if you tell the student up front, you're like, well, Hey, you know, there's some gray areas here and you can push it, but you really are playing with fire. If you do that. And as long as they understand and they can make an informed opinion, then fine. But if you're kind of telling them to dance in those gray areas on the fringes, I think that's a uh, negligence on part of the instructor. I always try to err on the side of, of caution. Um, because like you said, we want to give them the best chance to, to stay out of trouble. Well, I, I, I think as an instructor, I, I, my obligation, my goal is to try to keep the students from, uh, from getting into trouble in the first place. Absolutely. And give, and give them the route to do it. And usually that's the most conservative. As you just correctly noted a moment ago, uh, there's a lot of states where retreat is not necessary, that uh, you can stand your ground. Illinois is a stand your ground state uh, through case law. But I also tell my students, look, if you can use the Nike defense uh, to get <laughs> out of a situation, uh, do it. Uh, as you noted earlier, ego and pride sometimes work against backing away or running away from a uh, confrontation. But if you balance against that, the uh, the extreme jeopardy that you're getting into uh, in a use of force situation, the cost legally, uh, the cost to you emotionally, uh, it, it, it absolutely behooves you when you look at the balance sheet there to try to get away from and avoid it. What I like to tell people, basically, I say, listen, if you've got a gun on your hip, you've already won the fight. So who do you have to prove it to? You don't have to prove it to yourself. Be confident in knowing you've already won. Are you get, do you have to prove it to the other guy? Do you have to prove it to the responding officer? Do you have to prove it to the prosecutor? Do you have to prove it to the judge or the jury? Who exactly are you trying to impress? So as long as you're confident in the fact of knowing that you've already won that fight, then you can walk away knowing you've won. You don't have to go through the process to prove it to anybody. Just be confident in knowing you've already won. And that should be able to set you know, that ego, that pride uh, aside and just avoid the, the situation. No good is going to come from proving that you're, you're you know, better, that you're stronger, that you're tougher, uh, that you're you know, faster draw. There's no good going to come from proving that. Anyway, the definition that I gave you earlier or the provision of Section 7-1, there's some other interesting things that I would note in it. Sure. Uh, it obviously, uh, when it talks about uh, to himself or another, it gives you the uh, right uh, to defend third parties uh, in, uh, in uh, warranted situations. Uh, but here is a whole separate uh, presentation that I do in the legal uh, my rule is uh, be very, very, very circumspect in the instances where you use uh, force, particularly deadly force, to uh, protect third parties. Uh, it's, a, it's a morass. In fact, I wrote a whole article on that. And the reason is, is uh, twofold. Uh, first of all, uh, when you're walking into the shoes of that uh, third party, uh, you don't know that that third party necessarily, particularly in a, uh, in a domestic situation, is going to necessarily support your use of that, of that force. You don't know what the facts are. There's the, uh, uh, the well-known case where the uh, guy hears a commotion in the alley. He goes and investigates. There's a guy on top of the lady. She's yelling, don't rape me, don't rape me. And he intercedes with a gun. Turns out it's a, a plainclothes police officer uh, doing an arrest for solicitation you know, that's not going to turn out well. No, absolutely uh, not. 
there was actually a case, uh, this one uh, usually amuses my students, exact same circumstances. A uh, guy hears the commotion in the alley, goes in, the lady is saying, don't rape me, don't rape me. He intercedes. It turns out it's a couple out doing some role play. Uh, and uh, this was their idea of recreation. Now, he pulls out a gun. Again, think about this. How supportive is she going to be now of his assertion of self-defense on her behalf when this was her spouse, her uh, boyfriend, or whatever? Uh, she's going to be turning on him uh, uh, like a hawk. Now you're fighting two so, people instead of in one. In the first instance, in the first instance, uh, defensive third parties is absolutely dependent on you being absolutely certain as to what the circumstances are that led to the incident. Uh, okay, you're standing in the shop and Rob at 10 o'clock at night in the uh, Twinkie aisle and a guy comes in and points a gun at the uh, clerk's head and says, give me all your money. Well, that's a pretty clear situation uh, where you're, it's pretty clear what's happening, uh, how it's happened, uh, that the third party, you know, how the third party is come coming to be needed to be defended. But if it's not pretty clear, I really advise my students uh, to uh, be careful. And even in a situation where it's pretty clear, I emphasize that you don't have a duty to defend those third parties. Uh, you have a right potentially to defend the third party, but if you're standing back there at the Twinkie aisle and you decide that you'd rather not uh, uh, intercede personally, you can go out the back door and call the cavalry on 911 and handle it that way. Uh, it, it, it goes back to, again, to being careful. And then here's the other problem with third parties. When you look at section 7-4 uh, of the Illinois uh, Criminal Code, it talks about use of force by aggressors. If you, if you institute or you initiate the uh, incident that brought on uh, the need for self-defense, uh, you're probably not going to be eligible for uh, protection uh, by the use of self-defense because you provoked the incident. Well, the same thing is true with third parties. If you walk into a situation and, and unbeknownst to you, the third party provoked the incident, and then you use force to defend them, you're likewise not authorized under the statute or under the criminal code use uh, force in their defense and, and people get in trouble for that. Yeah, it's better just to be a good witness. You don't have clarity of the situation. Uh, it's probably not a good idea to, to get involved and to interject yourself into something that doesn't, uh, you know, it, if it doesn't involve you, don't involve yourself is what I like to say. Be a good witness, call the police, maybe take some video. Um, but, uh, you know, everyone's got a different moral compass and some people feel that they are protectors and they want to help. And that's that's very uh, commendable. But as you said, you can easily get yourself into trouble. Um, trying to do what you believe to be the right thing, but you're making false assumptions, uh, and that's where you can end up in trouble. Well, I, uh, I, I, again, when it comes to third parties, uh, the right is there, but, uh, and I use the word but with a large underline under it, uh, be very, very careful and very circumspect. Uh, as you noted uh, earlier, uh, the Illinois statute also would authorize uh, deadly force uh, to prevent uh, the commission of a forcible felony. And then that language is, uh, I won't say it's unusual. There's other states that have it. Uh, uh, but 
in some respects, uh, as, well, as you noted earlier, most of the instances when you're talking about forcible felonies, uh, you're talking about uh, acts of violence or uh, threatened violence against an individual, which, uh, which is uh, what we'd normally expect in terms of a self-defense case. But there are also forcible felonies sitting out there that are uh, property only. Like arson. Uh, you're right. Uh, I, I used to use, uh, this is an odd uh, oddity. I used to use a situation, you look out and you got one of those uh, storage buildings in your backyard that's uh, stacked uh, to the uh, top and bottom with stuff like mine is. And you look out and a guy is uh, running out there with a Molotov cocktail getting ready to torture. Uh, in Illinois, arson is a forcible felony and is defined as a forcible felony. If he's going out there toward that unoccupied building, uh, Illinois law would actually authorize you uh, to use deadly force uh, to prevent the arson. And I, that surprises a lot of people. Another instance would be uh, burglary. Uh, if you look out and you see someone, your car's parked out on the street and somebody's broken into the car and unbolting your uh, prized Bose sound system, uh, you know, breaking into a vehicle with intent to commit a theft therein is a burglary. And so under Illinois statute, you could actually, if you, uh, you know, including that as a forcible felony, use deadly force to prevent that. And uh, I tell my students, uh, and if that surprises anybody, if you look at section 7-3, it actually says use of force in defense of other property and talking about the forcible felony is right in the statute. And I tell uh, my Steve Davis rule number two is never, I repeat, never use deadly force uh, to protect property. It's just a bad uh, result and a bad equation. And, uh, and it never turns out well. Uh, so in that respect, I consider the Illinois uh, use of force statute to actually be a little bit of a trap. Well, what about actually, uh, the, the first forcible felony, the first example of what a forcible felony is when you look up the actual definition? Uh, everyone in my classes always gets a chuckle because it's treason. And uh, I like to say, you know, I don't care who you voted for. No one can go down to Springfield and, and pop someone in the head with the nine millimeter because they're treasonous. It doesn't work that way. Uh, and that is literally right. the first definition of a forcible felony uh, on the list is treason. So like you said, it could be it could be a trap. It just uh, it just is. Uh, and, and this is one where I get a lot of uh, resistance. Uh I, I get resistance from students because at this point, they're still wired on protecting property. Uh, they, they say, well, you know, that's my car. That's my, my sound system. Uh, that's my outbuilding. I should be able to protect it. And I tell them, well, maybe you think that, but what's, here's the problem. If I've got a juror or a public or a, a state's attorney or a investigating officer that's resistant to the right of self-defense uh, against a person, what do you think their view is going to be? When I'm trying to convince them of the reasonableness of you using self-defense or deadly force to protect your crime more, it's a non-mover, it's, it's a tough one uh, in, terms of the, uh, in terms of the argument. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, you have, uh, 
a lot of people that don't realize that uh, what's what are they jeopardizing? Okay, you go out there with your uh, with your uh, Mahaska to protect your car and your Bose sound system, and this guy pulls out a gun. Uh, now you're in a gunfight, and uh, maybe you'll prevail. Hopefully maybe, you will, maybe, but maybe, maybe you not. won't. Right? Is a is a Bose sound system in that car uh, worth getting uh, a limb amputated or being crippled for life or having a colostomy bag or dead? I mean, I, I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think it's probably worth it. Well, and, and then on top of that, what you said earlier, all right, they win, they prevail, and they are found to be justified by the law. Well, all the people that we're seeing in our classes, uh, and I'm sure your classes and mine, they're good people. And they're going to, this is going to haunt them all their lives. Absolutely. They're going to have to live with the fact that they shot and killed somebody, uh, they bled out uh, in front of them, and they died. And what is the uh, what is the stress? What is the terrible uh, mental harm that you're doing to yourself? And you could have avoided the whole thing by just ducking back inside the uh, curtain and calling nine one one. Yeah, I mean, we so pay taxes for a reason. Property, Let the police do their job. Defensive property is is a loser. Uh, and so I tell them that with regard to the uh, forcible felony uh, business, uh, if it's somebody being harmed, if there's a person being harmed, uh, then uh, okay, then you can consider it, uh, you, particularly if it's you. Uh, but uh, if it's not uh, if it's not an involvement of, uh, of a person being threatened, uh, then if it's just property, then let it go. So let's talk specifically um, about use of force and defensive dwelling, right? That's your house, your home. Um, and, I, you know, we hear all the time, if I find someone in my home, I'm going to shoot them. If I find someone in my home, I'm going to kill them. And I'm like, it's not really the right way to, to look about it because there have been situations, especially in subdivisions where every house is cookie cutter, where a neighbor, a drunken neighbor walks into the wrong house. Um, I'm guilty of it. I went to a friend's house. They knew we were coming. They said the door's unlocked, let yourself in. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, we literally walked right into the neighbor's house. They were sitting there on the couch uh, and it was both our faces were like, they were in shock and we were in shock and it was just like, sorry, shut the door, took off running. So it can happen that uh, you could find yourself in the wrong house accidentally. And I hear people say it all the time. If I find someone in my house, I'm going to shoot them. Uh, tell me if that's right or wrong. Uh, you're absolutely on point. Illinois law, uh, section 7-2, talks about defensive dwelling. And for your listeners out there, uh, let's talk just a moment about what is castle doctrine. Uh, castle doctrine, basically, there's two parts. The traditional part of castle doctrine was that even if you're in a uh, retreat state, you don't have to retreat when you're in your own home. That's the traditional castle doctrine. But by statute, states have actually enlarged uh, what we now colloquially known as castle doctrine to actually give the homeowner in the certain circumstances a presumption of reasonableness if use of force occurs in the home. Uh, Illinois statute uh, gives you that beginning presumption of reasonableness if the entry is made in a riotous or tumultuous uh, manner. Uh, 
that's been defined by case law to mean, okay, they kick in the door, they break in a window. Uh, there's actually a, a couple of cases out there where a masked intruder is also a tumultuous entry. So the net result is if you use deadly force in that situation, that reasonableness uh, that's discussed and uh, we discussed in regard to section 7-1, they start the presumption in your favor. But it's a rebuttable, and I tell my students, if the facts don't ultimately justify the use of force, uh, then they'll overcome the presumption and they'll prosecute you anyway. Uh, in the instance, in the situation that you noted earlier, uh, you walk into that house by accident. Uh, if the homeowner had pulled out, a, pulled out his net and shot you, and then it turned out that you were a, just an innocent, uh, innocent trespasser, uh, the law would probably have been prosecuting that homeowner. Um, a homeowner in Minnesota, uh, they've got a real castle doctrine, uh, real good castle doctrine statute up there, uh, shot an intruder uh, after repeated break-ins, he shot an intruder. Uh, the intruder was laying there uh, semi-conscious and he walked up and gave him an extra one behind the ear. All right, well, they prosecuted him and he's in prison for murder. Regardless of the castle doctrine in, in Minnesota, uh, the presumption of reasonableness was overcome by the fact that the threat there was no longer imminent and they viewed that as an execution. So I try to tell my students, get over this thought process that just because it's in your house, I can do anything I want. That's not true. You've got to uh, uh, ultimately justify the, uh, justify the shoot as being reasonable, reasonable. And I go back again to the uh, ability, opportunity and jeopardy uh, trifecta uh, as being a way that they can evaluate that. And it's not just the first shot that needs to be justified or the second shot. Going to your example, you know, maybe the first three, four shots, however many shots it took to stop that threat, to make them surrender, throw away their gun, their knife, whatever. Um, every single shot has to be justified. If you keep shooting and you un unload your magazine, uh, we saw in uh, Officer Van Dyke shooting, you know, I don't believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe the argument was that the shooting was unjustified. I believe the argument was that after the guy dropped, he kept shooting and that is what got him into trouble. And that, and that eminence argument is, is, a, is a tough one. And, and that's where I wish I could sit down and educate the entire public of the United States on the, the manner or uh, the doctrine of reactionary gap and uh, the difficulty in terms of, uh, you know, the, the response time that people have and why uh, these occur, particularly in a police situation. Uh, I know that that's been the issue, uh, particularly in one of my uh, cases that I acted as an expert witness. In fact, that was the principal issue, was this reactionary gap. And, and so getting back to the house, uh, everyone listening to this needs to understand that just because it's in your house, you just don't automatically have a right uh, to go on ahead and, and shoot the intruder there. You have to be able to articulate that you felt that you were being threatened at that moment. Uh, and then that imminent, and then it was, that threat was imminent. Yeah, absolutely. I like to tell people if I find an intruder in my house, 
and he's walking out the door with the TV, I'm going to let him go. But if he comes back in, it might be a different story depending on the situation. But if he's walking out the door, there's no threat. Yeah, he's taking my TV, but you know what? The TVs are outdated two years after you get them anyway. You've just got a great excuse to get a brand new TV. So um, I tell him to I tell him to throw him the remote. <laughs> yeah, because you don't need it anymore. Why but not? This this brings up what is the principal mistake that gets people into trouble in self defense cases, though, and I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, the number one way in which people get into trouble, and if you look at the cases nationwide, this is a common element, is the fleeing attacker situation. The attacker uh, is trying to get away or is moving away from, uh, from the uh, defending person at the moment that force is administered, and uh, they get themselves jammed up in that situation. If you look at the ability, opportunity, and jeopardy triad, uh, you can see why it fails so badly or why it's such a problem. Uh, does someone have the ability to inflict death or great bodily harm if, on you if they're moving away? Well, maybe if they've got a gun shooting over their shoulder, but if they've got a knife or a contact weapon, uh, probably not. Opportunity. Do they, can they bring their force to bear or their ability to bear? Well, again, if they're moving away from you, uh, it's pretty hard to argue that uh, there's opportunity. And finally, is there jeopardy? Is there a manifest intent there to commit or to uh, inflict harm on you? Well, this is the worst of the three in terms of the fleeing attacker, because if he's trying to get away from you, how are you going to argue and articulate that he meant to harm you? So we go to your TV situation. This is why even in the house, you'd let him go, because if he's running away, he's got his hands full of a big screen TV. He doesn't have the ability to hurt you. He's not in a position to the ability to bear, and he's trying to get away from you. So therefore, he's not intending to hurt you. And this is the common problem that uh, we see in a lot of these cases. I tell all my students that everyone has a little bit of terrier in them. Uh, <laughs> when that attacker starts to try to run away from you, your first reaction is to want to chase them. And you've got to break yourself of that. If you want to chase bad guys, uh, get training as a police officer and, and become a police officer. But the common civilian, once the bad guy wants to disengage, then you've got to, and I make them repeat it to me several times, let them go. Uh, because at that point in time, your articulation of self-defense is going to be awfully difficult. Hey, Steve, what about this new trend, people with concealed carry licenses shooting at shoplifters? Well, yeah, you can, uh, you can uh, see why that fails on a number of instances. First of all, what are they doing? They're defending property, not even their own property, maybe, or in that one instance, that shop owner did uh, use force uh, to prevent, what was it? It was a hardware store. It was a, at a Home Depot, and it was just a, a customer, just a random person shooting at a yeah, shoplifter. And and he's being prosecuted now. Uh, so is that property worth uh, the use of uh, force in terms of 
uh, defense of property? I would say no. Now he's in a maybe maybe he'll get a sympathetic jury. I don't know how that case has come out. It's, uh, maybe it's already gone. I, I think it but, worked through uh, and they got a slap on the wrist, lost their concealed carry license. You know, obviously they're out legal fees, lost a concealed carry license. If I remember correctly, uh, they did an interview and it was laughable because they said, I'm never going to help anyone ever again. And I was just like, please do the world a favor and don't help people if that's your definition. Exactly correct. I mean, uh, I, I again, it goes back to uh, you're not going to use deadly force or the threat of deadly force unless it's a it's a genuine uh, life, uh, life and death kind of a situation or a serious bodily harm uh, situation. Uh, can I make one note in that? Sure. Um, one of the things that I emphasize with students uh, and pro you probably do, too, but I'd want to bring this out. The common punch, uh, if you're in a fist fight, somebody throws a punch, you and I are together and we're arguing about which one of our wives is the better looking. And we get into a situation where you, uh, I throw a punch at you. Is that a situation if you're carrying uh, where uh, deadly force would be authorized? Well, the Illinois talks about, I mean, section 7-1 talks about force that's likely to cause death or grave bodily harm. And we certainly know that punches can cause a lot of harm. In fact, it kills people every year. But the general case law is, and our students need to understand that a punch is generally not going to be deemed to be deadly force. And therefore you can't respond in the usual situation with uh, deadly force. So if I took a punch at you in that situation, you pull out your gun and shoot me, uh, we're, you're gonna probably have a, a criminal issue. Uh, there has to be in terms of that justification, some finding, some articulation of uh, disparity of force. Uh, and then the usual punch is not going to authorize it. And I try to emphasize that with uh, our students that you know, they're in a situation where uh, they're potentially going to be punched or uh, somebody took a punch at them. Uh, they're not going to probably be authorized to pull out their gun and, and uh, utilize it. I absolutely agree. I mean, unless it's a, um, a person that you know to be a, a mixed martial artist master um, that you can... Uh, articulate that they their hands are, are a deadly weapon and we know people like you said get killed by feet and fists and you know sometimes a one lucky shot and, and and they fall down hit their head or something so yes but that becomes a hard argument to make unless you know for a fact you know if we're sitting there arguing about like you said our wives or you're saying the ar-15 is better than the ak or the nine is better than the 45 and it comes to a fist fight and i know for a fact that you're you know eighth degree black belt then maybe Maybe I can make a, a logical argument, but even then, it's still a maybe. One of the things that I emphasize to my students, and, and I found this from uh, observation and experience, is too, uh, you, you can go through and you can articulate uh, ability through disparity of force all you want. But if you use uh, deadly force against an unarmed attacker, uh, you're almost inevitably going to get prosecuted. Uh, the state's attorneys will almost never sign off on to that uh, just for what I perceive to be pure political reasons. The public at large uh, has a stigma as far as 
shooting the unarmed man. Right, right. And uh, and uh, politically, uh, states' attorneys are always under a lot of pressure in those situations, and so they'll almost always prosecute that case. Um, you have uh, uh, in as good a disparity of force situation as you can possibly articulate, but they're still going to uh, uh, prosecute. I, the, the case out of Masad Ayub's book on Mary Hopkins is, I think, one of the best I've ever seen on that. So I want to touch base on two topics that are uh, really important. In Illinois, there is civil immunity if your use of force was justified, but that doesn't mean you won't be sued in civil court. Agree? Agreed. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that uh, the criminal plaintiffs will attempt to uh, circumvent that and you'll get the suit and maybe you've, maybe you can successfully uh, under the uh, provisions of uh, the statute, uh, get it dismissed, but you're going to have to hire an attorney and go through the uh, process of trying to get a dismissal. Uh, and so you're going to have, just as we noted earlier, you're in the legal grind and you're going to have a lot of expenses. And once the lawyers get involved, you've already lost. It doesn't matter what the outcome is. The only difference is how much are you going to lose? But you've already lost once the lawyers are involved. Only winner. <laughs> only winner. And well, then let me ask you this, because that actually segues perfectly into my, my next question that uh, uh, I'm really uh, interested in. You know, you, a gentleman who spent time in the courtroom, what types of legal gamesmanship are the prosecutors going to, to make um, purely for maybe, let's say, to an emotion driven you know, when they just as an example, the police officer in Minnesota, when he uh, had the, the dust cover on his uh, service rifle, um, the AR-15 has a dust cover when it pops open, it has, you know, you can have words written there. Uh, and his happened to say, uh, you're fucked. Uh, and the uh, prosecutor made um, a big deal about that. What other games have you seen uh, prosecutors make uh, uh, against someone who is otherwise justified in the act, but they're just trying to throw everything they can at them. The list is endless, and the, and the list of gambits is endless. Uh, and let me note again to the uh, listeners, uh, be very, very careful about these signs that they have up on our bumper stickers. I, uh, trespassers will be shot, survivors shot again. Um, uh, I call, you know, I don't call 911 and, and all of this stuff. Those can, as you noted earlier, all of this can be utilized against you by a state's attorney to show a predisposition uh, to uh, commit the violence, and that it wasn't a righteous use of self-defense that that just or that prompted you to use force. It's because you wanted to hurt somebody. Uh, that's a common one. So be very careful about what you post. Uh, if you got some of those signs, they're cute. Uh, get rid of them. Um, I've seen state's attorneys use training as an argument to uh, say, well, you were predisposed to use violence. We tell our students, get training so that you're well prepared and, to, uh, and can act uh, responsibly and appropriately. I've seen a state's attorney argue, well, you got training because you wanted to go out and kill somebody. I mean, the bottom I've line is they're going to use whatever they can against you. Absolutely. The, I've seen state's attorney, well, the Knox County assistant state's attorney in the Love case uh, was arguing that he put these terrible hollow point bullets in his handgun 
because he wanted to hurt somebody bad. You know, I am so well, happy you brought that up. Obviously, hollow points, uh, depending on where someone is, I know New Jersey, they're legal. Illinois, perfectly legal. And, and what I think almost every single instructor is going to recommend you carry. It's what almost every single law enforcement officer carries. So here you are doing what is responsible as a legally armed civilian because hollow points are less likely to overpenetrate, therefore less likely to have collateral damage. And here's a prosecutor saying that you're uh, evil for doing what is responsible. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I told the defense counsel this uh, and I said, you need to have I suggested that an expert needed to get up and, and testify. Uh, he didn't want me to do it because I had been the instructor for the judge in prior course. <laughs> oh, that didn't, uh, I didn't do it that time. But uh, I've seen that. Uh, I saw uh, an, a, a state's attorney make the argument, well, you armed yourself before you went out and you had the inclination to go on ahead and hurt somebody. They utilized uh, the carrying as an argument to try to argue that uh, that, well, you were predisposed to want to go out and use violence. Well, uh, in fact, I had that come up uh, when I testified in, uh, in Champaign County in that case. And I looked at the jury and say, I take my, I take my firearm with me when I go to the bathroom. Uh, it's with me all the time. It doesn't mean anything other than I just want to be protected all the time. I have my spare tire wherever I drive. It doesn't mean I'm looking forward to getting a flat tire. Exactly correct. So I've seen states attorneys uh, make the argument, uh, and and Masad Ayub and, and uh, uh, Ronka talk about this. Uh, well, you didn't uh, attempt to uh, render first aid. You didn't attempt to uh, do anything to try to help that poor guy after you shot him, and, and try to use that as a uh, evidentiary foundation to argue malice for purposes of a uh, first degree first degree type murder charge. Uh, that's why Bronca and Masada, you both recommend that in your 911 call uh, that you uh, ask the dispatcher to send an ambulance. That's rendering that, aid. That renders the aid. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I've seen, uh, I one of the most pernicious arguments that I've seen, uh, and this is one of the hardest to address. This is talking about the reactionary gap. State's attorneys uh, will argue, well, you shot him in the side or you shot him in the back. And therefore, the threat had been already mitigated. It was no longer imminent, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Or uh, maybe they say, you shot an unarmed man. That came up numerous times that I've seen. The pernicious argument about the reactionary gap is, you and I you know, and I know that when we start we tell our students, you keep shooting till the threat's stopped. But scientifically, it's been established that it takes the better part of a second for our uh, visual system to process information and then for our, to order our muscular system to stop or to do something, uh, at least seven tenths of a second. And so in that seven tenths of a second, you fire off a couple of shots, more shots after you've decided that force is no longer necessary. And so that's last or next to the last shot uh, as, the, as, the vic, as the attackers going down was in the side or in the back. Well, I've seen state's attorneys all over the place make the argument, well, you were shooting this guy after the threat had stopped and he was retreating, et cetera. 
and, and that's that's one of those that is really uh, common. Uh, it's one of those that's common because a lot of people don't, don't understand reactionary gap. And that's one of the problems that the police officers have. And, and that's why you need an expert witness to testify on your behalf what those scientific um, points are. You know, this is why, you know, first five shots were completely justified. That last shot was in his back. You're going to charge him with murder because of one round. But here's the reactionary gap. He couldn't stop fast enough. A lady in, uh, a lady in uh, uh, Georgia got convicted of uh, second degree murder uh, because the leg, next to the last and last shots uh, were in the side and the back uh, after she fired her gun to uh, prevent a uh, forcible rape. And because of uh, ineffective assistance of defense counsel, uh, lack of expert witnesses to uh, explain this reactionary gap, she's in prison. Yeah, and it's unfortunate, but it's just, it is what it is. Our legal system is not perfect, but it's the only system we have. Um, so you can, you know, yell at the sky all you want. And, you know, to some degree, maybe we should, we should change what's not working. But at the same point in time, um, it, this is what we have to work with. So until it's changed, until it's fixed, until it's improved, we've got to play by these rules. Um, you know, it, it, it just is what it is. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate, but that's just what you got to do. So, Steve, I was going to ask if you had uh, any seminars coming up, if there's any way that uh, someone wanted to get in touch with you, um, you know, tell us what you have going on in uh, Steve Davis land. Well, right now, the uh, the legal seminars for the uh, self-defense insurance is kind of on hold and been on hold for the better part of a year because of the uh, COVID we're going to start having uh, our concealed carry classes. Uh, I am going to be speaker on uh, June 12th in Clinton uh, at a Gun Save Life uh, day meeting. Uh, and I'm gonna be talking about self-defense. I think I'm gonna probably talk in depth about uh, the uh, uh, criminal case that, uh, out of Champaign County because there was all sorts of uh, tactical and legal issues that jumped out of that uh, and I wanted to tell them about. But anyone that I, I'll be, I will be speaking down there on June 12th so they can look that up uh, and that's through the uh, Gun Save Life organization. Yeah, I, they're, they're a great group uh, down there and uh, uh, I've, I've made many attempts to get down there. It just uh, never works out for timing issues. Um, but uh, I can spend days talking to you about this topic. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. It's a topic that I'm interested in. Uh, it's always great when I get the chance to speak to someone such as yourself with your experience who uh, can really, A, tell me if I'm wrong when I'm wrong because nobody's perfect, and B, uh, reinforce uh, some of the opinions uh, and the interpretations that I have as a layman. Um, so I would love to have you on again if there's any cases that come up that you want to give uh, your insight. Uh, you are welcome to be a guest on my show at any time, Steve. Give me a call. I've got several different uh, presentations that I do. I've, uh, I would characterize this as a probably a general self-defense discussion. Sure. Uh, I've got one uh, presentation that I have at uh, what I call the four most common mistakes that get people into trouble. And I try to break that down uh, for individuals. Um, I've got different presentations that I've done. Uh, like I said, I've 
I'm going to do a presentation down there in Clinton on uh, the case that I had out of Champaign County. What did the what did the uh, criminal defendant do right? What did he do wrong? And and uh, you know what some of the salient issues were in the case. Uh, it's a pretty interesting case. I've talked at length about the uh, James Love case that came here out of Knox County, and it, there again, it's one of those uh, real life cases uh, here in Illinois. Uh, in fact, on state Illinois, where we're seeing uh, self-defense coming to fore and, and we're seeing what people did right, what they did wrong, and, and hopefully students that listen to it can uh, learn from it. If anyone wants to get a hold of you, Steve, do you want to drop any of your contact information? Uh, I would uh, have them contact me through the uh, Gun Save Life organization. I've got Great. an email through them. Uh, if you look on the, the old gun news, you'll find my uh, GSL um, information. I don't have it right in front of me to tell you the truth. That's all right. You know what I'll do is I'll edit it into the podcast. I'll put it up on the screen and in the description. So you can I'll just send, send, it, that, I'll email send that email over to you. Perfect. But uh, they can reach me there. Um, I got a call the other night at 3.30 in the morning from a self-defense situation. So I do get calls. Well, keep up the good fight. Thank you for helping out the law abiding, keeping them in their beds at night rather than a cold jail cell. Uh, I want to truly, uh, I can't tell you uh, how important these types of conversations are and to have someone with your experiences is just uh, awesome. Um, anything you want to add before we uh, disconnect and uh, part ways? I just uh, want to thank everybody uh, for listening. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, go out there and stay out of trouble, folks. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Again, Steve, thank you for being on the show. Um, definitely, we're going to keep going with these weekly podcasts. So uh, touch uh, base and, and sign up. We're on all of the uh, the platforms, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, um, iTunes. So uh, you definitely subscribe on your favorite platform. Again, we're doing weekly webinars as well. So you want to touch base on the Facebook and, and or the YouTube uh, pages. Uh, remember, Alpha Concepts is spelled with a K. If you have an idea, for a podcast if you want to be a guest on this show i'm all ears contact me alphaconcepts.com and if you want to be a sponsor for the show you can contact fire and iron media their information is going to be in the description at the very end of the podcast as always everybody be armed be trained and be alpha This has been a Fire and Iron Media production. You have something to say, people want to listen. How's that, Daddy? <laughs>